Welcome to Episode 2 in the AIC Seasonal Video Series, Trinity Tide, The Teaching Season. I'm Father Ron Shibley, Founder and Director of the Anglican Internet Church. The focus of Episode 2 is a continuation of the discussion of Trinity Season, including the liturgical colors, the possible variations in the seasonal calendar, and a wide-ranging discussion of the collects, epistles, and gospel readings for Trinity Sunday and the first two Sundays after Trinity, plus appropriate music for all these occasions from the St. Chrysostom Hymnal. Previously in this series, in Episode 1, Part 1, my focus was on the history of Trinity season, the relationship between Whit Sunday or Pentecost and Trinity Sunday and season, and the 1928 Book of Common Prayer Collects, Canticles, Epistle, and Gospel Readings for Whitsuntide. In Episode 1, Part 2, I focused on the Collects, Epistle, and Gospel Readings for Monday and in Whitsun Week and Tuesday in Whitsun Week, and concluded with appropriate seasonal music for Whitsuntide. Episode 1 included 20 illustrations from the 6th through the early 20th century, 15 of them depicting the first Pentecost. Now in episode 2, I return to my discussion of Trinity season, the longest season on the church calendar covering the entire second half of the church year. Trinity season has two liturgical color schemes. For Trinity Sunday only, the color is white, which is the color of Feast of the Savior, for stoles, chasubles, paraments, paraments, and the draping of crosses. For all the Sundays after Trinity, the liturgical color switches to green, the same green used during Epiphany, except Epiphany itself, and the octave of Epiphany, for which the color is white. Over the centuries since the Church of England was created by the Act of Separation in 1535 A.D., and the first Book of Common Prayer was published in time for Whit Sunday in 1549 A.D., many clergy, scholars, and journalists have offered complex theories concerning the reasons for the selection of epistles and gospels read in Trinity season. I find none of these theories compelling. Whatever logic may have been present was undermined by the various changes in subsequent editions of the prayer book, especially in the American church. In this series, I will discuss them as they are in the American 1928 Book of Common Prayer as amended in the 1940s. I leave analysis of the complex theological reasons for their inclusion to viewers if they be so inclined. For the 25 Sundays after uh, from Trinity Sunday through 24th Sunday after Trinity, the, the Gospel readings in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer include 12 selections from the work of St. Luke, there being nine from St. Matthew, two each from St. Mark and St. John. The illustrations are Byzantine, Greek, and Russian Orthodox icons of the four Gospel authors, clockwise from the top left, St. Luke, St. Matthew, St. Mark, and St. John. 
The selection of epistle and for the epistle readings is an eclectic sampling of the work of St. Paul, plus two readings from St. John and one from St. Peter. Listed in the order of predominance of usage from the pen of St. Paul, there are five readings from Ephesians, four from Romans, four from 1 Corinthians, three from Galatians, two from Philippians, followed by two readings each from 1 John and 1 Peter, followed by two more readings from St. Paul, one from 2 Corinthians and one from Colossians, and finally, ending with the loan for the epistle reading from Revelation, which actually opens the series of readings on the first Sunday after Trinity. The illustrations are clockwise from the top left, Andre Rubelyos, unfinished temporary and silver on panel Russian Orthodox icon of St. Paul, painted around 1407 A.D. and now at the Tretyakov Gallery in Moscow, Russia. A detail from the 15th century Italian fresco in the Greek Orthodox style of St. John dictating Revelation at Mount Athos, Greece, and a Greek Orthodox icon of St. Peter also at Mount Athos, Greece. The length of Trinity season is variable. Its start, its start depends upon the date of Easter, which affects the dates of the Feasts of Ascension and Whitsuntide. Its ending date depends upon the date of the first Sunday in Advent, a movable feast, which always is the Sunday closest to the fixed feast of St. Andrew, celebrated on November 30th. Under these complex and variable conditions, Trinity season can have as many as 27 Sundays after Trinity, not counting the Sunday next before Advent. This happens when Easter is celebrated on its earliest possible date. It can have as few as 21 Sundays after Trinity, again not counting Sunday next before Advent. This situation happened in 1943, and according to experts, will happen again in 2038 A.D. The illustration is the interior of the celebrated 14th century octagonal lantern tower over the transept at the Anglican Cathedral Church of the Holy and Undivided Trinity at Ely in Cambridgeshire, England one of many churches in England named after the Holy Trinity. The 1928 Book of Common Prayer provides a collect epistle and gospel reading for the 24 Sundays after Trinity plus the Sunday next before Advent, the official end of the season. In the fine print, known as rubrics on page 224, are the complex details for a transfer of surplus services not used at Epiphany season to make up the shortfall. In years when there are 26 Sundays after Trinity, here counting Sunday next before Advent, the collect and readings for fifth Sunday after Epiphany, not used owing to the shortening of Epiphany caused by an early Easter, are read on the 25th Sunday after Trinity. However, in years and when there are 27 Sundays after Trinity, the reading schedule is adjusted differently, with the collect and readings for 5th Sunday after Epiphany being read on the 25th Sunday after Trinity, and the collect and readings for 6th Sunday after Epiphany 
being read on the 26th Sunday after Trinity. The illustration is a cover of an edition of the 1549 Book of Common Prayer, the first prayer book of the Church of England used for the first time at Whit Sunday in 1549 A.D. The 1928 Book of Common Prayer provides two choices of proper preface for Holy Communion on Trinity Sunday. The first proper is attributed to the late 6th century Pope Pelagius II, modified in both the Gelasian and Gregorian sacramentaries as they were used in the Sarum Missal in England. This proper preface was originally intended to be read throughout Trinity season. It was restricted to Trinity Sunday only in the Second Book of Common Prayer published in 1552 AD and in all later prayer books. Pelagius's version was addressed to the Holy Trinity in the American 1928 Book of Common Prayer, which we use, the proper was changed to address the Father. The text borrows from the so-called Athanasian Creed read in many Anglican parishes on Trinity Sunday. Who with thine only begotten Son and the Holy Ghost art one God, one Lord, in trinity of persons and in unity of substance. For that which we believe of thy glory, O Father, the same we believe of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, without any difference of inequality. The illustration is an early 18th century Holy Trinity statue by Chirisola Barela, atop the Holy Trinity Column near Buda Castle and St. Matthias Church in Budapest, Hungary. God the Father is seated on a throne. Jesus Christ holds a huge golden cross, and the Holy Spirit is shown as a golden dove in front of a starburst, a design popular in the Roman Catholic artistic tradition. The second proper preface for Trinity Sunday was written for the first American prayer book, the 1789 Book of Common Prayer. It avoids the theology lesson in the first proper by Pelagius II by substituting language from the King James Version of the Gospels and from Acts of the Apostles. And it reads, For the precious death and merits of thy Son Jesus Christ our Lord, and for the sending to us of the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, who are one with thee and thy eternal Godhead. In my former parish, consistent with the recognition of Trinity, Son, Trinity as the teaching season, I always used only the first proper owing to its more complex theology lesson. The Collect for Trinity Sunday is attributed to the Blessed Alcuin of York, Arthur, author of the Collect for Purity in Holy Communion, and a contemporary of and religious advisor to the Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne. Almighty and everlasting God, who hast given unto us thy servants grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of the divine majesty to worship the unity we beseech thee that thou wouldest keep us steadfast in this faith and evermore defend us from all adversities who livest and reignest one God, world without end. Amen.
The illustration is a detail from an early 19th, 9th century manuscript showing Alcuin of York, second from the left, with Rabanus Maurus, abbot of Fulda on the left, paying tribute to Archbishop Odgar of Mainz on the right at the National Library of Austria in Vienna, Austria. Rabanus Maurus and Alcuin of York were considered amongst the most, among the most learned churchmen in Western Europe in the early days of the revived Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne, the period commonly known as the Carolingian period, owing to the fact that the English name Charles, when spelled in Latin, is Carol. Before the epistle reading is Revelation 4, 1 through 11, a rare liturgical use of Revelation in the Anglican prayer book tradition. The only other readings are for the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels on September 29th and for All Saints on November 1st and at the consecration of a church. The reading is full of St. John's Old Testament scriptural allusions, his use of Jewish numerology, in this case 4 and 24, and his powerful liturgical imagery that inspired the form of Christian worship in the early church. The reading begins with the invitation to St. John in verse 1 of the heavenly voice like a trumpet to, quote, come up here in the New King James Version or come up hither in the King James and prayer book versions and see from a heavenly perspective things that are to come. His statement in verse 2 that he was, quote, in the spirit, unquote, when he received the vision implying the presence in himself of the indwelling spirit of the second collect for Whitsuntide. His vision of the 24 elders around the throne of God in verse 4, and in verse 6, the vision of the four living creatures evoking the imagery of Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1, 5, and 21, that became the images of the four gospel authors in early Christian church art and remains so today. That is, the man, Matthew, the eagle, John, the ox, Luke, and the lion, Mark. The readings include two hymns, the first sung in verse 8 by the four living creatures, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which along with Isaiah's vision of the throne of God was the inspiration for the Christian hymn of the same name. The second, in verse 11, is a hymn to the Creator, sung by the 24 elders. You created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. The illustration is the 24 elders and four living creatures worship before the throne of God from the Bamberg Apocalypse, an 11th century illuminated manuscript of Revelation at the Bamberg State Library, Bamberg, Germany, used in the AIC bookstore publication, Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. The Gospel reading for Trinity Sunday, John 3, verses 1 to 15, is an iconic pericope, which is Greek for a selection of verses from Scripture, of the powerful, image-filled, and unique account of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee who, with St. Joseph of Arimathea, later attended to the details of Jesus' burial. 
Nicodemus has come in the evening darkness, evidently feared being fearing being seen by other Jews. A literate, religiously trained man, Nicodemus is also literal-minded, having heard in verse 3 Jesus on the necessity of being born again as a condition for seeing the kingdom of God. He asks in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? To which Jesus replied in verses 4 and 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In the remaining verses, St. John relates in verse 8 a discourse on the spiritual meaning of the Spirit based upon the Greek pneuma. In verse 13, a prophecy of Jesus' ascension. And in verse 15, a powerful doctrinal teaching and promise spoken by Jesus. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The first illustration was an opaque watercolor over graphite on gray wove paper by James Tissot, painted between 1886 and 1894 in the collection of the Brooklyn Museum. The second is a circa 1930 AD stained glass window, The Visit of Nicodemus, by the celebrated firm of Franz Mayer of Munich at St. Joseph's Fellow Chapel, Richmond, Virginia, from the AIC bookstore publication, Paintings on Light. The collect for the first Sunday after Trinity was adapted by Archbishop Cranmer from the Gelasian Sacramentary, evoking images of the merciful God, his grant of grace for the salvation of mankind, on the continuing value of his commandments, and on the usefulness and necessity of prayer. O God, the strength of all those who put their trust in thee, mercifully accept our prayers, and because through the weakness of our mortal nature we can do no good thing without thee, grant us the help of thy grace that in keeping thy commandments we may please thee both in will and deed through Jesus Christ our Lord. The illustration is a detail of the sore-ridden Lazarus from the upper tier of a three-tier illumination of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in the 11th century gospel book Codex Arius of Esternich, prepared between 1035 and 1040 AD at the Benedictine Monastery on Reichenau Island in southern Germany from the collection of the National Library of Germany, Nuremberg, Germany. The parable is the subject of the gospel reading for the first Sunday after Trinity. The epistle reading for first Sunday after Trinity is 1 John 4, verses 7 to 21, St. John's extended essay on the meaning of love, not in the earthly sense of romantic love, but of God's immense love for mankind. The New Testament Greek had many words which can be translated as love, but in this case all two dozen uses are of the Greek agape, or agapao. 
In Christian theology, the word refers to the special kind of love, that is, unconditional love, which, as St. John explains, God holds for his creation, mankind, into whose human presence he sent his only begotten Son and also his Holy Spirit. For more on agape and the several other Greek words which can be translated as love, see the episode for the first day of Christmas with the key word love in the AIC seasonal video series, The Twelve Days of Christmas, available through links on the digital library page at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net with podcasts, versions of the same program available on the podcast archive page. Here are but two of the most memorable quotations from this epistle using the New King James text. The first is 1 John 4, verse 12b. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. The second is 1 John 4, verse 21, the concluding verse in the pericope for the first Sunday after Trinity in which St. John refers to the new commandment Jesus gave the disciples on Monday, Thursday. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. The illustration is St. John the Evangelist, the right-hand image in a pairing with St. Athanasius from an early 12th century fresco at the Church of the Kaiseriani Monastery at Mount Hymettus, about 15 miles east of Athens, Greece. The Gospel reading for first Sunday after Trinity is Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, one of the best examples of St. Luke's elegant prose. This Lazarus is a poor beggar and not the man raised from the dead in John 11, verses 38 to 46. The illustration, the complete three-tiered illumination, folio 78 of 136 in the Codex Aureus of Esternich, an 11th century gospel book mentioned earlier and now at the National Library of Germany in Nuremberg, Germany. The top tier is the rich man dressed in royal purple and fine linen at dinner with the beggar Lazarus looking on at right while dogs lick his sores. Both men die, with the result shown in the second and third tiers. In the second, Lazarus is taken by an angel to the, quote, bosom of Abraham, an allusion to heaven in verses 22 and 23. In the lower tier, the rich man is condemned to the fires of Hades. The five other figures in the right-hand half in the lower tier may be an allusion to the rich man's five brothers, mentioned in verse 28. In the text in verse 26, Abraham says in response to the rich man's plea for relief, and besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. The closing discourse in verses 30 and 31 is between the rich man and Abraham after the rich man's plea for a message to his five brothers from among the dead had been rejected by Abraham in verse 29. At the beginning, it is the rich man speaking. 
No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he, meaning Abraham, said, If they do not hear Moses, did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The illustration demonstrates the strong Byzantine influence over the Ottonian dynasty and the succeeding dynasties of the revived Holy Roman Empire in the mid-11th century. I discussed the parable in more detail with two additional illustrations from the early 17th century in episode 19 in the AIC Bible Study Series New Testament Gospels, linked from the digital library page at www. AnglicanInternetChurch.net. The collect for the second Sunday after Trinity was adapted by Archbishop Cranmer from the Gelasian Sacramentary. Like the Trinity symbol in the illustration, a computer-generated image based on an ancient Celtic original, the collect emphasizes the eternal nature of the Holy Trinity, that is, having no beginning and no end. O Lord, who never failest to help and govern those whom thou dost bring up in thy steadfast fear and love, keep us, we beseech thee, under the protection of thy good providence, and make us to have a perpetual fear and love of thy holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. At the end of this episode and the slides on other AIC resources, I will say more on the word fear. The meaning of love was previously addressed in the discussion of the epistle reading for First Sunday after Trinity. The epistle reading for Second Sunday after Trinity is 1 John 3, verses 13 to 24. It is clear why this pericope was chosen for a place near the opening of Trinity season. St. John ties together the reality of the hatred of the world for the Christian faith and its members called the Brethren, and Jesus' propitiatory death upon the cross. He points out in verse 18 the need to act and not just talk about love, similar to the theme for the epistle reading for First Sunday after Trinity. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. Eastern Church scholars believe little children refers to the newest converts to the Christian faith. Others think he is referring affectionately to the members of his own congregation at Ephesus. He concludes in verse 23 and 24 with advice on the practical application of the meaning of love based on the new commandment by Jesus in John's presence on the evening of Monday, Thursday, and described in John 13, verses 34 and 35. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. The illustration is once again an early 12th century apse fresco of St. John at the Church of the Caesariani Monastery in Mount Hymettus near Athens, Greece.
The Gospel reading for second Sunday after Trinity is Luke 14, verses 16 to 24. The parable of the Great Supper, which is one of the kingdom parables based upon the phrase kingdom of God in the preceding verse, number 15. It was spoken in the region of Perea, east of the Jordan, and called Gilead in the Old Testament, in the winter of the year 29 A.D. into 30 A.D. The parable is similar to the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, delivered at Jerusalem later in the spring of 30 A.D., in the final week before Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. In Jesus' parable, there is the master of a household who prepares a great supper and sends out invitations, announcing in verse 16, Come, for all things are now ready. Immediately, the invitees start declining. They bought oxen, bought land, gotten married. In verse 21, the angry master commands a second invitation to be broadcast in the streets and lanes, summoning the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. But still, there were to be empty seats. A third invitation was sent out. It included a chilling warning to the world in verses 23 and 24. Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. I discussed the hidden meaning of streets and lanes and highways and hedges according to the early church understandings and my podcast homily for Second Sunday after Trinity. The the first illustration is a 10th century Byzantine-style illumination in guilt on temper and temper on parchment of St. Luke writing his gospel in the collection of the British British Library in London, England. The second illustration is a circa 1840 A.D. reproduction of an early 18th century etching invitation to the Great Supper by the Dutch poet and illustrator Jan Lukian from the Boyer Bible, a multi-volume illustrated Bible at the Bolton Library, Bolton, England, a suburb of Manchester in northwest England. As the theme music for this series, I have featured Reginald Heber's hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, ably played for us on his church organ by Richard Irwin and available for download from his dedicated web address, and this is a new address, https colon slash slash play. And then the name of his site, hymnswithoutwords.com. In the St. Chrysostom Hymnal, the AIC's collection of traditional hymns arranged to easily sung tunes There are 11 hymns addressed to the Holy Trinity which are not included in the 1940 hymnal. I will mention all 11 during this series. I begin with All Hail Adored Trinity based upon an 11th century Latin hymn I found in the 1861 A.D. printing of Hymns Ancient and Modern, the Church of England's first collection of hymns, which I set to Deus. Tiorum Militum, 
Hail, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, written by Charles Wesley in 1763 A.D., arranged to the familiar tune Arlington, and J.W. Eastburn's 1815 A.D. composition, O Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, arranged to Winchester New. The St. Chrysostom Hymnal is available using the virtual bookstore link at the bottom of the homepage at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net. Other AIC resources referencing topics discussed in this episode are found in the AIC bookstore publication Layman's Lexicon. In the entries on Fear of the Lord on page 76 and 77, on Providence, as in Thy Good Providence in the Collect for Second Sunday after Trinity, and found on page 178, and in Beliefs of the Anglican Church, the entries for the Doctrines of Grace on pages 77 to 78, and Fear of the Lord on pages 82 and 83. In our book, Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation, in which St. John is invited to come up here for a heavenly perspective in the four-epistle reading for Trinity Sunday from Revelation 4, 1 to 11, that is the subject of chapter 4, which includes two illustrations from the early 11th century illuminated manuscript, the Bamberg Apocalypse. And finally, from the AIC bookstore publication, Paintings on Light, The Visit of Nicodemus, which is discussed and illustrated in, on page 14. On the podcast homilies page, you can listen to my podcast homilies for, the, for Trinity Sunday and the first and second Sundays after Trinity, especially the early church teaching on the rich symbolism of the parable of the Great Supper. Other AIC resources available on our website are our Bible study series, New Testament Gospels, linked from the Bible study page. And here we'll find St. Luke's account of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is the gospel reading for first Sunday after Trinity, with additional illustrations from the Western Church tradition in episode 19. In episode 34 in the same series, I discussed the meaning of abide from the Greek meno used in the epistle readings for first and second Sunday after Trinity, but here based upon St. John's use of the same word in John 14, verse 16 and 15, 7. Thank you for joining me for episode 2 in Trinity Tide, the teaching season. Next time, in Episode 3, the focus will be on the 3rd, 4th, and 5th Sundays after Trinity. Finally, in addition to the previously mentioned AIC resources, I invite you to subscribe to Father Ron's blog, my weekly posting of and news of AIC publications and other events, often including one historic art illustration. To subscribe to my blog, simply click on the Follow Anglican Internet Church tab on the blog page at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Glory be to God for all things. Amen. 
This program has been a presentation of the Anglican Internet Church. We invite you to visit our website and use its resources at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net.